Good morning, Hillside, on this sunny, what feels like summer Sunday. I'm so glad you've joined us online. Um, my name's Derwin, and uh, I, I love Hillside. And does this not feel like kind of important days? Uh, restrictions are beginning to drop. Vaccination rates are super high. Um, we are looking at the, the potential of regathering. As we've said, we've added an, an extra service next week, so we've got two services next week. The following Sunday, we're going to be... Uh, Moving, changing time, so we'll announce that next week. You're going to want to hear about that. But uh, we're moving indoors, and uh, so looking forward to seeing you. Um, I sense for some of us, man, we just learned a new normal, and we're, we're kind of thinking about going back to another normal, and it feels like uh, we're maybe a little frozen, a little bit fearful, and uh, I, I want to encourage us to shake off the rust, you know, of, of what it means to be a people, uh, to be a gathered people. And uh, let's, let's regather. And uh, maybe for some, you haven't served in a year. You just haven't had opportunities to serve. And so we, we need to be serving one another. And so shake off the rust and let's, uh, let's get serving again and, and uh, be what the body of Christ is meant to be, which is not ideally us sitting by ourselves in front of a screen. Amen? You with me? All right, I got some amens in the room. There's a few here, and next week there'll be more in the room as we record our service, as we live stream it. Uh, by the way, if you need sermon notes today, we're in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 to 48. If you need sermon notes, you'll find them on the live stream link, and uh, might be helpful to follow on along or look at later. But we're in this series in the Gospel of Matthew, and last week, Angel helped us explore what you might call part one of Jesus' most radical teaching where he talks about rejecting uh, retaliation, rejecting revenge. This week is part two of Jesus' most radical teaching, love your enemies. Loving people who you hate, and newsflash, they might actually hate you too. You never know. Um, some of you know John Stackhouse. He uh, used to be a regent professor. He's a writer. He posted this note last week. He said, one of the deeply irritating teachings of Jesus is that I must love other people, even enemies, as he loves me. On social media, therefore, I have to treat everyone as a neighbor Jesus loves. Indeed, I must treat them in Jesus' name. Irritating, he says. Uh, these, these words of Jesus, as one scholar describes them, are like a mountain in human history. No one has ever said anything quite like this before Jesus, and no one said anything like it since or lived it who wasn't just referring back to what Jesus said about loving enemies, how we're to treat enemies. And so we can't help be, but be kind of awed by it because it has the capacity to radically transform human communities and relationships. And if we begin to just get an inkling of this, to internalize it in our own lives in even just a small way, it'll change us. Uh, right off the bat, I want to uh, just revisit one thought from our passage last week because these two last texts that we find in, in uh, chapter 5 of, of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, they really go together. From, from our text where, where Jesus talks about retaliation, some have been led to what you might call the doormat misunderstanding. If you're a disciple of Jesus, someone hurts you, you just do it. You, you turn the other cheek, you do what you're told, you just submit to it. You let people walk all over you. You do nothing. 
That's how many people perceive Jesus' teaching. But that's not what Jesus said. What Jesus said is, you find from somewhere from within you, because Jesus has, has, has done this work in you, because he's opened this up for you, you find compassion for that other person. That's not passive. That's, that's not doing nothing. That's powerful. As Angel said, this is incredibly subversive. It's very intentional and an active response. And it's what Jesus calls love or agape in this passage. That's what we find in our text today. The response to those who hurt or, or harm us is not to do nothing. It's to do love. And this has the, the capability of so transforming human relationships. There's a reason why when we see this in action, it takes our breath away. And we see it as the most profound thing you'll ever see. Let's dive into Jesus' words. You, you might want to turn there if you have a Bible. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, while you're finding that, why don't we just pause for a moment and pray. Holy God, uh, this morning as we consider these, uh, these words that seem so out of reach, we pray, uh, would you plant them in us and in our lives uh, and, and, and actually not let us ever forget them, that we might actually be changed in the way we relate to others, especially those who hurt or harm us or those we call enemy. Teach us your ways, Jesus, we pray. In your name, amen. So verse 43, it says, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Let's pause here. This is the sixth time Jesus has used that little you know, mechanism, you have heard it said, he takes some Old Testament law and then he confirms it or qualifies it in some way and then he goes on to give his teaching on it. And his teaching is almost always not, not negating the Old Testament teaching, but fulfilling it and, and kind of moving it towards deeper issues. Notice in verse 43, he'd, he'd usually paraphrase, paraphrase some Bible verse and here he's quoting from Leviticus 19, verse 18. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. That's the source of love your neighbor. Pop quiz. What's missing? Hate your enemy. <laughs> Where's that? Well, it's actually not in the Bible at all. If you don't believe me, spend the rest of your weekend reading, uh, doing a quick scan from Matthew to Malachi. You, you won't find it in the Hebrew Scriptures. The, the key is in the word or the phrase that Jesus uses where he says, but you have heard it said. He's referring to the way this verse in Leviticus has been uh, understood and, and talked about and, and taught. And it's going to become clear that this idea has been mishandled and misunderstood. And it circled around this question that was likely a raging question, raging issue in Jesus' day. It's what the guy in Luke chapter 10 asks Jesus. Do you remember he says, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And what does Jesus respond? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And the guy goes on to ask this qualifying question, who is my neighbor, right? This question, I, I think, was on a lot of people's minds in Jesus' day. Well, back to Leviticus 19, let's see if we can learn from, from the context the answer to the question, who is my neighbor? 
there's all kinds of clues about who your neighbor is. Let's, let's read a bit. Beginning in verse 15 of Leviticus 19. Do not pervert justice. Uh, do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. Number 16. Do not go about spreading slander among your people. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. I am the Lord. goes on to say, do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke, rebuke your neighbor frankly, so you will not share in their guilt. And then finally, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. So reading the verse that Jesus quotes in context, who is your neighbor? Who seems to be addressed in Leviticus? There's lots of clues. We read things like, anyone among you, your people, your fellow Israelite. So Jesus, this Jewish man who's teaching a Jewish audience, is actually, uh, seems to be addressing the Jewish people. And, and it's God in, in Leviticus talking to his people, talking about how they're to kind of arrange and, and live their common life together. So love your neighbor seems to be, from that part of Leviticus, love those who are in your tribe, your people, your, your nation, your people group, your church, your actual neighbors, your peeps. Love your peeps. I think Jesus might have said if he was to say it today. Well, yes and no. Because there are other rabbis who would just point a few verses down in Leviticus 19 to, to verse 33, where it says, When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native-born. Love them as yourself, for you are foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So who are they called to love there? Israelites, but actually also immigrants, non-Israelites. Israel was to be a place of, of welcome for people who are not part of their tribe. Who, they're to be well-treated, and they're to be brought into the community as fellow Israelites. And so there are many rabbis who appeal to this passage to expand the definition of neighbor to include immigrants and newcomers and, and refugees, you might say. Now fast forward again to Jesus and his day, and there were many people wanting a clear answer to the, the question, who is my neighbor? Think about it. The Jewish people, if you remember their history, they had a long history by this point, 500 years or so, of living under oppressive regimes. They were ruled by the Assyrians, uh, then the Babylonians, the Persians, and now they're being ruled by the Romans. And all of these were horrific, violent dictatorships. You know, for, for Jesus' followers, they would have been living under this oppressive rule their, their whole lives. They'd been mistreated, they'd been persecuted, they'd been crucified. Uh, 6,000 at one time, we're told. Uh, they were taxed. Get this, so, some scholars tell us that under the Romans, individuals could be taxed something like at a 90% tax rate. And you thought... Taxes in Canada were high. So no wonder, actually, uh, why tax collectors were hated in Israel. Tax collectors who were usually Jewish people who were collecting taxes from their neighbors, uh, they were not loved. They were, they were hated. And so the question, who is my neighbor, is kind of a burning question. Who counts? So Jesus picks up Leviticus 19, and he expands it beyond what 
any rabbi did in his day. It's not just love for people inside Israel. It's not just care for foreigners, foreigners, immigrants, and, and newcomers. Jesus says the love that's commanded in Leviticus 19 is a love without any boundaries. It's a love without borders. It's a love for your friends, and it's a love for your enemies. Love even for the Romans, the oppressors, and, and love for tax collectors. Love for people you hate and for people who hate you. Now he goes on to explain why. We, we see this in our text where Jesus gets this idea of loving enemies from two places, uh, weather patterns and scripture. You know, pick up what he says in our text. He says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. By the way, just pause there for a moment. Uh, this isn't talking about entrance requirements into God's family, you know, that, that you may be children of your Father. It means that as you follow our Heavenly Father, as you follow God, you begin to, have a, you begin to bear a family resemblance. You begin to reflect his character. But how do you know what God is like? Well, Jesus says, think about the weather. This is a very Canadian question, by the way. Think about the weather. Don't we do that a lot here? He says, God, he says, God causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. You know, growing up, I, I heard a lot about farming because both my mom and my dad, they both grew up in farm, on farms and farming communities. Some of you'd remember that my grandpa was a sheep farmer. I have a great picture in my office of my, my grandfather shearing sheep. And so often in my home growing up, we'd talk about weather as how it related to farms and farmers. Even today, when I, when I call my mom, when, when we talk about the weather, she'll predictably say something about how the farmers really need the rain right now. <laughs> or on the other hand, how they really need it to stop raining right now so that they can you know, bring in the crops. Well, Jesus, turns out she's a little bit like my mother. He knew about the weather. And he noticed how things work in the world of farming and weather. Jesus observes that the farmer who is, you know, an, an upstanding person, just treats their farmhands fairly. They, they get the same weather, both good and bad, as the farmer who cuts corners, who cheats suppliers, who underpays their employees, mistreats them. They get the same sunshine, they get the same life-giving rain as the good farmer. Friends of God, enemies of God, they all get in on sunshine and all manner of good gifts from God. I mean, think of, just for a moment, of all the things in the world that delight you. God is indiscriminate about giving those to, to people, to everyone. It doesn't matter how they behave, they're all gifts from God. And good and bad, we all get to enjoy them. This is actually really important theology. I would say the book of Job, it was written to kind of expound on this kind of thinking. But Jesus is saying here that there's something in the weather that reveals or teaches us about God's abundant generosity. God does not treat people according to how they behave. Now, Jesus does believe that... that uh, you know, one day God will put all things right and that there will be this accountability for the way that we live our lives. He does still in this passage distinguish between a good person and an evil person. But there's this moment of pure grace and generosity that points 
to the kind of loving God that we have. The second place, Jesus, he looked at the weather, but I, I think he may have been drawing this thinking from Psalm 145, where it says, the Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. The eyes of all look to you, and, give, and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. So you can look at the Bible and you can look at weather. God is generous to people who hate him. He gives them rain and sunshine because that's just who God is. He's gracious and he's generous. And so Jesus' point is if that's what God is like, if that's what, what should people in God's kingdom be like? We should be gracious and generous. And of course, we see this kind of grace and generosity demonstrated in the kind of life Jesus lived, especially in the, the meals and the banquets that Jesus put together, that Jesus threw for people. He hosts. Let me ask you, who does Jesus invite? Everyone. Everyone. From, from religious leaders, Pharisees, to tax collectors, to enemies of Israel, the worst people in these communities, communities. he'd invite them to this meal and he invites them into relationship to follow him and to participate in the kingdom of God. It's radical. It's generous love. By the way, I, I think uh, when we read this today, when, when we read that Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners, don't we in those moments when we read that, we kind of feel good about Jesus? We're like, Jesus, you're so good. I mean, that, that's, I mean, I love that about you, Jesus. Don't, don't you feel that? I mean, we get kind of warm fuzzies about Jesus when we read about him extending the table. So, because we live in a, in, a, in a day where we think of inclusion, right? And so Jesus is so inclusive here. But, but contextualize that story for a bit. What if Jesus was hosting that meal with white supremacists or members of ISIS? Or what if he was having coffee with Nathaniel Veltman, the 20-year-old who hatefully ran over a Muslim family with his vehicle in London? Or how about a fentanyl dealer? Or a child porn producer? Or a human trafficker? How would we feel about that? Jesus having meals with those people. I don't for a moment think that I think that Jesus would condone any of those things. I don't think him, but, but I think this, I think that image, I don't, I don't think we'd be as enthusiastic as we are about Jesus sitting down with them as, as we think about when we think about him sitting down with tax collectors and sinners. We just don't get into the Israelites' shoes here. And I think this would have been closer what it would have meant for them. You see how radical that would have been? All, all this gives us a clue as to what Jesus meant by love here. It's helpful to know that the Greek word is agape. Some of you know that well. It's translated as love. The word love is kind of unhelpful because in English it can mean all kinds of things. You know, I, I love dosa. I love lamb curry. I love Lord of the Rings, right? Who doesn't? Um, I, I love my wife, I love God, I love my kids. We kind of lump a whole bunch of things in there and use this word love kind of equally to describe those things, and yet they're so different. 
And, and, and then in English, love usually refers to something that we feel. It's a feeling. We fall in love, which implies it's something that happens to you. But Jesus means something very different when he uses this word agape. If love is a feeling, do you have warm feelings towards the Roman soldier that requires you to carry his pack? When your master strikes you with his hand, are you supposed to be feeling happy towards them? Or, or when the, the tax collector charges you, probably bankrupts you, uh, an exorbitant rate, are you feeling warm fuzzies for them in that moment? Probably not. I, I like how Bible scholar Tim Mackey uh, defines agape. He says agape, not a feeling, is an attitude and a mindset that flows towards action from that mindset. Let me say that again. Agape is an attitude and a mindset that flows towards action from that mindset. This is what God does. He's chosen to agape, to love. Jesus is not asking us to generate false feelings for our enemies. What he's asking us to do is to choose to view our enemies in a certain way, to choose to view them the way God views them. In, in, in God's economy, they are persons. Your enemies are persons of great worth, made in God's image. And God chooses to come in the person of Jesus and, and incredibly uh, demonstrate his love for them in, a, in, in a, an amazing act of self-sacrifice. You know, I, I was struck by this thought this week that as a follower of Jesus, I, it, it's really above my pay grade. I actually don't have the authority to treat someone as unloved when Jesus has demonstrated his love towards them. Folks, in the kingdom of God, I, I don't have the right to deny somebody kindness and generosity. Why? Because we're to look like our heavenly father. There are some actions that we do because you know, we feel like them, but there are, at other times, loving actions are clearly a choice. This is what Jesus goes on to talk about in verse 46. He says, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are you not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans, the Gentiles, do that? Jesus, I think here, is actually kind of acknowledging that, that you and I were yeah, we can be pretty decent folk, right? Like, we could be okay uh, when we're inside our circle, when we're with those people that we like. It's, it's actually not that hard, Jesus is saying, to, to do acts of kindness and generosity towards those who are like us, towards people who we like, or, or people who are in the same social network or, or niche that we are in. But I'd say, I think Jesus would say we're, the problem is, is we're pretty selective and self-centered with our love. We do this, don't we? We kind of gravitate to loving those who, when we love them, they love us back. And Jesus pokes at that right here and reminds us that that's not a bad thing, but it's actually kind of self-serving. That might be love, but it's not agape. That this kind of agape love reflects the kingdom of our Heavenly Father. And this is what he's getting at when we read in verse 48, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
Now, does that word just not trip you up just a little bit? Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Count me out. I, I know I am a lot of things, but I'm pretty sure perfect is not one of them, right? Doesn't quite fit. Well, the Greek here, word here is the word teleos. It's a word often used in philosophy, the telos. It means the end of things, the end goal or purpose, which is why I think in the rest of the New Testament, teleos is most often translated mature, as in the end goal of childhood is what? Adulthood, right? Maturity. That's the end goal, maturity. I like how John Mark Comer explains this. He says, Jesus is saying that the end goal of apprenticeship to him is to grow and mature into the kind of man or woman who is like God, who has become godly. And the mark of maturity of God-likeness is really easy. You just kind of map out where you are in relation to your enemies. The less you love your enemies, the more immature you are. The more you love your enemy, the more like Jesus you are. Comer goes on to say something quite convicting. Listen to this. He says, this is why so few followers of Jesus take this teaching seriously because so many of us never reach this kind of maturity in our apprenticeship to Jesus. We never become the kind of people who resemble our Father, who not only love our neighbor, but also our enemy. In other words, loving enemies is like advanced discipleship. It's, it's not a, an entry-level course of following Jesus. It's a mark that you're beginning to look like Jesus, walking out his ways, and when, it's happens, when it happens, it's a, a beautiful, it's a stunning thing. I've been really, <clears throat> I've been really enjoying reading Tremper Longman. Tremper Longman is a Hebrew Old Testament professor. I, I listened to an online class with him earlier this year, and I enjoyed kind of getting to know him just as uh, almost more from not more uh, more uh, not just his content, but what he talked about his, his life and, and how he lived. And in his class, he was asked why he writes so many books with Dan Allender. Dan Allender, I've, I've shared about him recently. Dan Allender is this renowned psychologist and expert on emotional trauma, and they've gone on to write several books together, which is amazing considering their story, because Tremper and Dan grew up in the same town together, went to the same high school together. And Dan, if you've seen him, he's this towering big man. And apparently in high school, he was a fighter. He loved to fight. He was kind of a bully. Uh, a bit of a drug pusher is how he described himself. I've heard him say that. And, and uh, that's that whole deal. And <laughs> no one, by the way, ever said, Dan someday will make a great counselor. <laughs> no one said that about him. To contrast, Tremper was this kind of clean-cut Christian kid, and apparently Big Dan would often beat the living daylights out of Tremper. Tremper was a remarkable kid. He believed in Jesus, and he believed in this teaching about loving, loving enemies. <coughs> so when he'd get beat up, he'd say, you can, you can beat me all you want, but I want to tell you, God loves you, 
and I love you too. Can you imagine saying that after you got a black eye from just being hit? He'd say that. And he apparently repeatedly took a pounding, but eventually, because of Tremper's loving response, nonviolent response to Dan, Dan eventually stopped beating him up, and amazingly, these two became friends. Even more amazingly is that Tremper, over time, led Dan to Jesus. And what Jesus did, <laughs> so good, he took this bully, this big bruiser of a guy, and he transformed him into a healer whose healing ministry has impacted millions of peoples through his writing. But what Tremper did was take an enemy and, and through agape love, he made a friend out of him. Isn't that good? Another example, Daryl Davis. He's a big black blues musician, a Jesus follower from Chicago. And he's been featured in the news in a documentary about his life. And you know, you know what for? This, this black man is best known for his friendships with white supremacists. He goes out of his way to form friendships with black, with, with members of the, the Ku Klux Klan. And through friendship, through relationship, often this is the first black person that this, this KKK member has ever really had any kind of rapport with, ever spoken to. And he's had something like 200 KKK members, white supremacists, actually walk away from that lifestyle, quit the KKK, and, and get this, they've actually turned over to, to him their robes. He's got this trophy room of, of KKK robes and badges and membership cards that, that these friends have given him. Isn't that crazy? He does it all in the name of Jesus. So good. That's agape love, turning an enemy into a neighbor and even into a friend. Let me ask you today, bring it a little closer to home, who is your enemy? Who might you think of as an enemy? Uh, it could be someone uh, from another country. It could be someone, someone with a, an opposing viewpoint or who lives in, in your eyes in an offensive lifestyle. Could be a people group, could be somebody from another gender. Uh, it could be someone who's been a perpetrator of, of some kind of horrific injustice. Who, when you hear about them on the news, are you tempted to feel hate towards? They could be your enemies. There's also enemies that are far closer to home than kind of out there in the world, right? There's those who have maybe betrayed us, those who've hurt us deeply, those um, who repeatedly hurt us, maybe. Uh, someone wounded you. I, I read somewhere this week that if you're not sure who your enemies are, pull at the thread of your woundedness, pay attention to the wounds you rehearse over and over, and you'll find your enemies soon enough. Where do the threads of your woundedness lead? Who might your enemy be? The question is, how do we love those enemies? How do we ever hope to adopt that kind of loving attitude and mindset and posture to them since it is so extraordinarily difficult? I mean, we all agree this is advanced discipleship. How do we do this? Well, Jesus' first <laughs> extremely little 
helpful step is to do simply this. He says, pray for those who persecute you. Often, in a lot of cases, the only viable way, the only honest way to love our enemies is to pray for them. And so Jesus, so Jesus helpfully connects the command of prayer to the command of love. I mean, this is right, we get this in the Lord's Prayer that we're meant to pray, right? You know, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Or it could be rephrased as, as we forgive our enemies. Of course, Jesus modeled this very thing when he prayed for his enemies on the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing, right? Here's the thing. I find in my life, when I have an enemy, enemies seem to take a disproportionate amount of space in our minds, don't they? They take up, a, they occupy a, a lot of mental real estate, Maybe it makes a little bit of sense then that Jesus says the starting place is to begin to pray for them, to actually change that mental space into one of prayer and blessing. You know, I've often liked that uh, prayer acronym, PUSH. You know, pray until something happens. Do you remember that? Pray until something happens. Keep on praying until something happens. I think that's what we do with our enemies. We pray until something happens. Something happens, hopefully, in us, maybe... Something happens in them. But actually, the, the, the greater miracle is often is what God does in us, the kind of healing work God does in us. It, it's going to require a miracle, right, to love our enemies. It turns out God is actually good at miracles. And I know there's those of you who've actually, man, you've been inspiring to me. You've tested this out, and you've cultivated this practice of praying for your enemies, and you found that God did such a healing work in you, and, and the hurt, and the pain, and the hate, as you prayed them, as you pushed, Jesus did this astounding healing work in you. We pray, at least as a starting place. God might like move us towards action. There's lots of scriptures and teachings of Jesus that talk about the good we do to our enemies, but we pray to start because Jesus' sermon demands more of me than I'm able to give. Left to myself, I'm both unable or unwilling to live in love towards my enemies. The life Jesus calls us to is a supernatural life that requires a supernatural God to live out this supernatural love because our call is to grow and mature into the kind of people who turn our enemy into our neighbor through love. Let me conclude with one final thought because we've all been on the receiving end of this. We've all had an enemy love us. <coughs> we see this in Paul's words in Romans 5. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, 
How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We were all enemies of God at one point. How did he win us over? How did he not just turn us into neighbors? How did God actually turn us into family? You know, sons and daughters of a perfect heavenly father. It was not through violence, and it was not through hate. <laughs> no, he turns us into, into friends through sacrificial, self-sacrificing, non-violent, cross-shaped love. And he loves us, he, he loves me through death into life in the kingdom of God. That's the way of Jesus. And when followers of Jesus do this, it's powerful. It changes communities. And it changes us. Amen. I'm going to invite Jordan. He's going to lead us in a time of responsive prayer. Let's pray.